Morning, everyone. The uh, reading uh, today uh, from Mark is from Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 22 to 33. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's uh, page 1011, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus said, sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John, the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. I love the fact that Joe sounded surprised that I was going to speak from the Bible. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for its power and its relevance. And we pray that we might get a clearer picture today of who Jesus is, of the lives that you want us to live, so that more people like Shona might see Jesus in us might want what we have because of your gift of grace. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who were visiting, we're going through the, um, the Gospel of Mark just now, and uh, we reached quite a pivotal moment. I'm just moving the cable so I don't trip over it because I'm bound to do that. But we reached quite a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know about you, but it seems a long time since Monday, uh, because it's another week and another prime minister. Uh, but it's quite something to realize that this is Rishi Sunak's first weekend as prime minister. 
It was only last Monday that Liz Truss stepped down and Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. Quite a momentous moment for the United Kingdom with our first Hindu Prime Minister. Quite a moment to celebrate the diversity and uh, just the nature of the United Kingdom. But it has seemed a long time since Monday. And I don't know whether it's me getting older, but these things used to happen at huge distances. You know, it was at least five years between prime ministers, not a day. And historians used to call them hinge moments, things that happened in history when things were different before and then things were different after. So you might think about the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo in what was Yugoslavia that triggered the First World War. Or perhaps um, November 1963 with the assassination of JFK. About 20 years ago, Kathy and I were fortunate enough to go on holiday to Dallas and we found ourselves driving into Dallas and by accident suddenly ended up driving by the grassy knoll exactly where JFK was shot. Now, I would have been nearly three when JFK was shot. Kathy wasn't born when JFK was shot. But we both found ourselves in tears because it was such an iconic place and such an iconic moment. Here was something that was different before and after that particular event. June 2016, when the UK voted to leave the European Union, was a hinge moment in our history. And we're still living with the consequences of Brexit, economically and socially. I don't know about you, but they seem to happen with increasing regularity, not so much hinge moments as revolving door moments. This year alone, we've had three prime ministers and two monarchs. That's a lot of history just in a few weeks' time. Well, here in Mark chapter 8, the passage that Brian read for us a few moments ago, we have a hinge moment, a time when everything changes. Mark chapter 8 marks the time when things change in the story of Jesus. Up to now, Jesus has been teaching and declaring the kingdom of God. He's been announcing the kingdom of God. He's been teaching people. He's been healing people. He's been demonstrating the kingdom of God. But on the incident that we're looking at today, his followers realize that he doesn't just announce the kingdom. He's actually the king. And a king who is completely different to the one that they had been expecting. Somebody last week pulled me aside after one of the services and said, in all, a lot of the incidents that we've been looking at in Mark's gospel, the same phrase keeps on happening. Jesus keeps on telling people that he's healed not to tell anybody. Have you noticed that over the previous few weeks? Even in the, today's, he, he heals this man who's blind and he tells the man in verse 26, don't go into the village. Even when he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. He tells them not to tell anybody about him. And the person last week said, why was Jesus trying to keep it quiet? Why was he trying not to let anybody else know what was going on? And I said, well, the reason is that Jesus was, was concerned that people, if they had, had heard who he was, would try to make him king in the wrong way. 
because you probably are aware that they were looking for a military-type leader. They were looking for a political leader. Those are the things that they associated with the Messiah who'd been promised for hundreds of years. They'd do various things. They'd cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. They would drive out all the opponents of God. And, and for the people in first century Palestine, that meant the Romans. So the reason Jesus tells people who he heals and even his disciples not to tell anybody is because he doesn't want to become king the wrong way and he doesn't want to be made the wrong type of king. Now the Gospels, true, are a, a different type of biography to the ones that we read today. A week last Thursday, it was, it's called Super Thursday in the book industry. That's when all the books for Christmas are released. So at the moment, I'm plowing my way through the latest Rebus. It's really good. It's depressing, but it's really good. You can recognize bits of Edinburgh, but it's really good. And a week last Thursday, all sorts of books were released by people. Sports journalists and personalities. Gabby Logan, Sue Barker, all the big names. Hugh Bonneville, at Bear Grylls. They all released their books in the run-up to Christmas because they want us to buy their books as Christmas presents. Hint, I don't want any of those. <laughs> but that's why they're appearing on things like Graham Norton and all the chat shows at the moment, because they're pushing their books. Now, the books tell us what has made them who they are. So we learn where they were born. We learn about their early influences. We learn about their families. We learn about where they grew up. We learn about where they went to school. We learn about the careers that they chose. We learn about the life choices that they made. We learn about everything that makes them who they are. So whether they're Gabby Logan or Bear Grylls or Sue Barker or Hugh Bonneville, we learn about who they are through their biographies. The Gospels of Jesus are different to that. Yes, we do have some accounts in Matthew and Luke of how Jesus came to be born. But if you compare them to the whole of the Gospels, it's very small in comparison with the whole of the life story of Jesus. And that's only in two out of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. In Mark, we don't hear anything about the birth of Jesus. In John, we get this sort of poem about in the beginning was the word and all that stuff about that we read at a carol service and everyone goes, mm, that's profound, but we haven't got a clue what it means. <laughs> it's about light and darkness and stuff. But what we have in the, the Gospels, the life stories, the biographies of Jesus are stories about who he is, not what has made him who he is. We don't get any reference to, to how he looks. Never thought about that. We don't have a clue as to what Jesus looked like physically. In the Middle Ages, they painted lots and lots of paintings of the miracles of Jesus and the stories of Jesus because most people couldn't read. So they portrayed it in art. And in most of the stories about Jesus and most of the paintings about Jesus, even Jesus on the cross, he looks as though he's just come from the gym. He's absolutely ripped, like, I'm Jesus on the cross. Look at my abs. He's got a six-pack. Now, first century Palestine probably wasn't like that. It's unlikely that Jesus was overweight, but have you thought about the fact Jesus may have been fat? 
Interesting. Discuss. What does that open up? But we don't get clues like that because that's not what the Gospels are trying to do. They're not trying to tell us what influenced Jesus, how he became the man that he was. The Gospels of Jesus are not a sort of celestial, eternal, divine, who do you think you are? They're trying to tell us who Jesus is. They're trying to tell us the life that he lived. They're trying to tell us what did Jesus say. And they're trying to inspire us that he's worth following, that he's worth living for that he's worth dying for. Now, in Mark chapter 8, the disciples have been with Jesus for two years by now. They've been listening to his teaching for two years. It may have been that what we know as the Sermon on the Mount is a sort of summary of the teaching of Jesus. Now, any good preacher, he keeps on repeating the same talk over and over again because he knows that his audience need to hear it more than once. So as he went from place to place to place to place, he would often speak about the kingdom of God and may have told the same parables again. Oh, it's the mustard seed again. Oh, it's the prodigal son again. But he he told them stories after story after story repeatedly. And the question is always there in the background. As Jesus tells these stories, as Jesus heals people, as Jesus drives out evil spirits from people, who is this man? Who is this guy? Was he a prophet? What is he? Who is he? What's going on? And that's why Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And firstly, who do people say I am? Maybe he's a rabbi. Maybe he's a teacher. Maybe he's a prophet. Who do people say I am, Jesus asks. And they reply with the word on the street, the sort of frames of reference that they had at the time. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist brought back to life. Some people say you're Elijah brought back to life, this Old Testament prophet. Other people, you'll think of one of the other prophets, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or or one of those guys. And then Jesus looks at them almost with sort of, I think, penetrating eyes. And he says, yes, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? In in the Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, it's an emphatic pronoun, sort of underlined in red. Who do you say I am? Never mind about other people. Never mind about public opinion. Never mind about what other people say. Who do you say I am? And into the silence speaks Simon Peter. Rash, impetuous Simon Peter. Now, the setting that this takes place in is important. Did you notice when Brian was reading it, it said they went to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is in Gentile territory. We've been looking over the past few weeks about how Jesus goes backwards and forwards across the Sea of Galilee from the area where he was brought up, Nazareth and and that area, to the other side, the Decapolis, the ten cities. Well, Jesus is now in Caesarea Philippi. It's close to the Decapolis, but it's very definitely Gentile territory. This is non-Jewish land. 
This is the place where nice, good, religious people, Jewish people, aren't supposed to go. This is where they think God isn't. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. It was an ancient city called Penaeus that sounds like an American restaurant chain. But it had been renamed by Herod the Great to honor the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. And he had a, a huge new temple built in honor of the emperor. It was sort of sucking up to the nth degree. And it's in this place, as Tom Wright observes, that the declaration of Jesus as the Messiah with the backdrop of a temple dedicated to the Roman emperor in a region of Gentiles is a clear proclamation of Jesus as king. That the kingdom of God is not going to be just for the Jewish people, but now it's for everyone. It's for Gentile and Jew. And Jesus is saying, in essence, a new sheriff is in town. Caesar is not the king. Caesar is not in charge. Herod is not in charge. Jesus is Lord. And after this, nothing will ever be the same again for Jesus, his followers, or indeed for the world. And this is a hinge moment. It looks back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 11 with the baptism of Jesus, where the voice comes from heaven saying, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased deliberately echoed in Star Wars and the Lion King. Deliberately echoed. This is his Darth, you know, you are my son, Mufasa or Simba. That's the moment. They've taken this from this moment, the baptism of Jesus. But it also looks forward to Mark 14, 61 and 15, verse 39, where Jesus goes on trial before Caiaphas and then the words of the centurion at the foot of the cross as he watches Jesus die and says, surely this man was the Son of God. And he asks his followers who've been with him for two years, who do you say I am? And into that silence speaks rash, impetuous, loyal, but passionate and committed Simon. And he says the words perhaps that everybody else is thinking, but they're not daring to say. Because once, it's, once you've unleashed this particular genie, you can't put it back in the bottle. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the chosen one. Now, was he saying that he thought Jesus was God? Probably not. He didn't understand, perhaps, the full implications of what he was saying. That this carpenter's son from Nazareth was God's anointed one in the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke, the Messiah, the Hebrew language of Israel, or the Christ in the Greek language spoken throughout the ancient world. You are the one that we've been expecting. You're God's chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one who will restore God's justice. You're the one who will defeat God's enemies. But immediately, Jesus begins to reveal that he is not the Messiah that they have been expecting. He's not the king that they wanted him to be, but neither is he the Messiah that they hoped he would be. He's a different type of Messiah, proclaiming a different type of kingdom, and being his follower is not what they've signed up for. Because immediately, Jesus begins to teach them, verse 31, he then began to teach them 
that the Messiah must die, that the Son of Man must suffer, that the Son of Man must be rejected, and the Son of Man must be killed. Suffering, rejection, and death. Now, it was inconceivable for the Jewish people that the Messiah would suffer. Suffering meant that you were cursed by God and not blessed. It was a sign that God had removed himself from you rather than God was with you. So it's a, it's a contradiction in terms that a suffering Messiah, those two things cannot go together. And yet that is what Jesus says. Jesus begins to teach them. This is the first time. This is new information for them. He hasn't taught them up to this point. Until they recognize who he is, that's when Jesus starts to begin to teach them that he has to die, that he has to suffer, that he has to be rejected, and that he has to be killed. And Jesus doesn't just predict it. He says he'll do it voluntarily. That all the events that will unfold over the next year and in that final week in Jerusalem are not an accident. They're not a mistake. But they're all part of God's plan. Jesus refers himself to himself as the Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. It occurs 81 times in the Gospels. It's very common in the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, I've come to be with you. I identify myself with you as the Son of Man. But the Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be killed. And the Son of Man must die. Simon Peter, again perhaps, says what everybody else is thinking. Jesus has asked them the question, who do you say I am? And he's taught all of them that he's going to have to be rejected and suffer and be killed and, and die. Notice that little detail that Simon Peter takes Jesus aside. Come with me, Jesus. I think we need a chat. It's not what I signed up for, Jesus. I think we need a word. You ever had those moments when maybe your boss says, you know, I just step into my office? This is one of those moments where Simon Peter goes, Jesus, come a word in your shell like. That's the ancient Aramaic of what Jesus was saying. Just come and have a chat, Jesus, because I think we've got a few things to sort out. That's not what I signed up for, Jesus. I didn't sign up for you to be rejected. I didn't sign up for you to die. I didn't sign up for you to suffer. I didn't sign up for you to be killed. That's embarrassing, Jesus. He doesn't want to rebuke Jesus in front of all the others, so he takes him aside. And what Simon is saying is, I need you to be the Messiah that I want you to be. I need you to be the Messiah that I need you to be. Not that you think you should be. If we're honest, how many of us have found ourselves in exactly the same situation? Something happens to us, or somebody that we know, somebody that we love, 
the prayer isn't answered in the way that we expect. And our reflex reaction, our response is to say, Jesus, I need you to be who I need you to be. I need you to be who you want, who I want you to be. And then we get the uncomfortable reminder of those words from the Old Testament where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. Higher than the heavens are than the earth are my ways from your ways. And we need to understand that being a Christian, being a Christ follower, believing in God, is recognizing that we are not God. And we don't get to dictate to God what he should do. Influenced by our culture, by our society, it is very easy for a lot of Christians to get in that way of thinking. That somehow we think God is there to do what we want and what we think is best. Whereas the paradox of the Christian faith is that it's about surrendering our lives to God and saying that He's in control. Many of us have the same attitude as Charlie Brown from the Snoopy cartoon. Winning isn't everything, but losing isn't anything. We don't want to die. We don't want to die to our ambitions. We don't want to die to our desires. We don't want to die to our priorities. We want to think that we're still in control, that we're in charge, that we know best. But being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we hand over control of our lives and that we hand over control to somebody who's bigger and more powerful than we are and knows far more than we ever will and who wants what's best for us, but it might not be what we want. It might not be in the way that we want and it might not be in the time scale that we want. And Jesus does not mince his words back to Simon Peter. Do you notice that Simon takes Jesus aside to say, we need to have a chat, didn't sign up for this. Mark tells us, and remember, Mark is is writing down his gospel as it's dictated to him by Simon Peter. Simon Peter is probably under house arrest in Rome and is dictating this gospel to John Mark, who's the author of the gospel, from Simon Peter's eyewitness account. Simon Peter knows what happens next because Simon Peter remembered what happens next because he's taken Jesus aside one-to-one not to embarrass Jesus. Jesus rebukes Simon Peter in front of the other disciples because he needs the other disciples to understand what's going on. And the word that's used for rebuke, epatanaio in the, in the Greek, it's the same word when Jesus rebukes evil spirits. It's a very strong word. And that's the word that is used to describe what Jesus says to Simon Peter and how he says it. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's pretty strong. Have you ever heard, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Lord, please speak to me. Get behind me, Satan. Won't read that in the Bible in a year. You know, when you look on your phone tomorrow morning, it's an encouraging word for you. Get behind me, Satan. Strong stuff. 
Now, yes, in Matthew's account, we learn that Jesus just told Simon Peter that he's the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church. But Jesus needs to nip this in the bud straight away and will spend the next year trying to nip it in the bud. That you need to allow Jesus to be who he really is on his terms, not on ours. And then he, in the passage that follows the verses that Brian read for us, he introduces the most profound paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus is rejected. Jesus suffers. Jesus is killed. Jesus dies in order that we might live, but we too must die in order to live. Because what Jesus is laying out for us is a pattern for what it means to be his follower. That if Jesus lived and died, then to be a follower of Christ means, Jesus said, whoever seeks to follow me will need to deny themselves to take up their cross and follow me. That being a follower of Jesus means daily dying to self. And that we live with this tension, as we were hearing earlier on from Shona. We don't die to self and we're not obedient in order to earn God's love. But knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're accepted, knowing that we're forgiven, in the knowledge of that love, we then want to lead lives that please God. And that means we die to our desires. We die to our rights. We die to our ambitions. We die to thinking that we know best. And in dying, we live on Jesus' terms. We live life as it was always meant to be lived. It's a bit like the, the, the film crew that Shona was working with who knew that they had to get up and pray for half an hour because they were going to work with Shona. And that they knew that they had to pray for half an hour if they were going to show Shona what Jesus was like. Because they knew what Shona was like. And it's the same for you in your office, in your workplace. That you of yourself cannot live for Jesus. You cannot show Jesus to the people around you unless the Spirit of Jesus is living in you and through you. That you die to self and, and, and you say to God, I need you to fill me afresh today. If I'm going to reveal you to other people today in my workplace, if the way in which I interact with people is going to demonstrate your kingdom and your love and your grace and your mercy and your patience, I cannot do it by myself because left to myself, I am angry, I am cranky, and I am bitter. And I'm the rector. I cannot do it by myself. I need your power. I need your spirit. I need the person of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus living in me, the Holy Spirit living in me, enabling me to live the life that you want me to live. Many years ago now, in the 1950s, there was a group of young, very enthusiastic missionaries and they determined that God was calling them to go to South America and to take the gospel of Jesus to one particular tribe that had had no contact at all with white people, no contact at all with people outside of their tribe. 
And it was a, a tragic story. This group of three or four missionaries went down, and within minutes, within minutes, they all lay dead on the riverbank, killed by the people that they'd gone to tell Jesus about. And one of them was a guy called Jim Elliot. And Jim Elliot, a few years before, about two or three years before he'd, he'd gone onto the mission field, had been writing in his journal one day, and he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, he had no idea that when he wrote those words, that just two or three years later, it would be a reality for him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life, on Jesus' terms. I had the privilege about 20 years ago of, of talking briefly with his, his widow, Elizabeth Elliot, quite remarkable woman, who worked through her grief and her anger at God and became a sort of beacon for other people who demonstrated in an amazing way God's peace and love and kindness and mercy, even though... Her husband had been killed on the mission field. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So what do you or I need to surrender control of to God this morning? What are the areas of your life and my life that we need to hand back to Jesus? Where are the areas where we think, perhaps, that we know better than God? Where we're trying to dictate to God how life should be, how life should go, what God should do, rather than simply, a bit like Shona said, recognizing that it's about letting go. It's not a passive thing. It's actually an active letting go. Handing over, deliberately choosing every single day to say, God, I cannot do it by myself. You are bigger than I am. You're more powerful than I am. You know better than I do. Lord, would you help me to die to myself so I can live life on your terms and become the person that you always intended me to be and in so doing become more fully myself?